If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus in chapter 19. Exodus in 19. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to guide us through looking at a couple passages in 19, 20, 22, and 23. Our, our main focus uh, this morning as we continue our series through the book of Exodus is um, chapters 21 through 23, 19. But we're going to kind of do a, a big picture um, view of this since we can't take each scripture at a time. But I told you last week that um, the part of Exodus that we're in lends itself more to taking it in bigger chunks. And so I hope... Uh, this will be fruitful for you. So we're going to start in 19, and we're going to read 4 through 6, and then I'll take us to guide us through the next uh, text after that. The ones I'm going to read up front will be behind me on the screen, but for the rest after this, you'll need your Bible or Scripture journal. So let's start here in 19, starting in verse 4. God's Word says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now go to chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now go to 22 and verse 31. Especially that first sentence in this verse. 22 and verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw them to the dogs. Last place, 23 and verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In 2013, in the New Yorker, author Maria Konnikova published an interesting article that was titled, why Your Name Matters. And I want you to listen to some of what she says. She says, In 1948, two professors at Harvard University published a study of 3,300 men who had recently graduated, looking at whether their names had any bearing on their academic performance. The men with unusual names, the study found, were more likely to have flunked out or to have exhibited symptoms of psychological neurosis than those who had more common names. The Mikes, she says, were doing just fine. But the Bereans were having trouble. A rare name, the professor surmised, had a negative psychological effect on its bearer. Further, she says, that other studies following this initial one found that names could influence choice of profession, where we live, who we marry, the grades we earn, the stocks we invest in, whether we are accepted to a school or hired for a particular job, 
and the quality of our work in a group setting. Our names can even determine whether, they said, we give money to disaster victims. If we share the initial with the name of a hurricane, according to one study, we're far more likely to donate to its relief. Much of the apparent influence of names on behavior, she says, has been attributed to what's known as implicit egotism effect. And you know this, we are generally drawn to the things and people that most resemble who? Us. Because we value and identify with our own names and initials, the logic goes, we prefer things that have something in common with us. She goes on further to say that more studies need to be done, right, since some of what has been found may be exaggerated, or at the very least, how we react to the names of others may be more subconscious than always purposeful. But she concludes with this, and this is what mainly I wanted you to hear. She says, we see a name implicitly associate different characteristics with it and use that association, however unknowingly, to make unrelated judgments about the competence and suitability of its bearer. The relevant question may not be, she says, what's in a name, but rather, what signals does my name send and what does it imply? Names have more meaning than we might think. Our names say something to others, and the pride we may feel attached to our name may have bearing on how we live. So if, for example, you have special pride about your last name, or you grew up being told by your family how proud you should be of your name, your public actions may be more carefully discerned because you feel like those actions will have either a positive or negative influence or reflection on the name that you bear. So as we continue to journey through the book of Exodus, we find ourselves in what is called the Book of the Covenant. And this spans from 2022 to 2333. And is essentially a series, if you read it before you came today, you'll, you'll notice it's a series of case laws that God gives to his newly formed people. The question that is being answered for Israel is, how do I bear God's name to the nations? How they live will reflect on the name they bear. And that name is Yahweh. And we'll explore more about that in a moment. As you know, up to this point in Israel's history, they have been slaves, they have been oppressed, they have been refugees, they have no idea how to live as free people in covenant with a holy God. How do we deal with debts and property and lawsuits and animals and festivals? This is what this is trying to explore. Now, to be clear, God is not giving here in the book of the covenant some kind of utopian society or an early form, as some might think, of communism or socialism where everyone shares their stuff. Clearly, Israelites will have their own property and their own stuff, but they need to know how to navigate disputes and strange circumstances that happen in life. So God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, gives them these case laws to help them know how to live, how to aid 
judges in making good and right and just decisions. Or to put it another way, these case laws inform Israel on how to live together and how to live in covenant with God. They clarify and apply basic principles of living in covenant with the Lord, and it gives some shape to the Ten Commandments. Everything that's said in the case laws, you can point back to one of the Ten Commandments. But we must remember that these laws were given to a specific people, yes? In a specific place, at a specific time. There is no one-to-one correlation between the Book of the Covenant and Christians in 2021. Not one-to-one. We are not fresh off of being physically enslaved. We are not under a civil government ruled by a God by God in a theocracy. We aren't in a primarily agrarian society. And we're on this side of the coming of the promised Messiah and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. But that does not mean that this text has nothing to say to us. Exodus 21 through 23 is as breathed out by God as Romans and Galatians and Luke and Matthew. It is, as Paul said, profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And as Paul also said, it was written down for us that we might benefit from it. So what do we do? What do we do when we come across texts like this? What should you do in your quiet time when you come to the book of the covenant or to Leviticus? Have you had those situations? You ever do the Bible in a year and you're just killing it in Genesis and you get to Exodus and then you get to the book of the covenants and you're like, what's the world going on? You press through, you get to Leviticus and you're like, I'm just going to skip this, right? Like, what do you do when you come to something, some, some of these rules that seem so disconnected from you? Paul said they're profitable. You can't just toss them out. What you should do, and what I hope you will see this morning, is ask, when you come to these texts, what do these tell me about God? What do they tell me about his character? And then, under every text is a principle underneath it that you want to find that you can apply directly to your life. Every text. And there's several overarching themes that run through the book of the covenant and gird it from beneath, which is why we read the text that we did a moment ago. So, we're going to look at four things. Okay, Point number one, the laws give shape to their bearing God's name. Okay, The laws give shape to their bearing of God's name. Israel is to respond to the grace and redemption of God, which they have already received, by reflecting his name to the world. The way in which they act will reflect on the name of Yahweh because they are his people. They bear his name. In other words, they are to live in such a way that communicates to the watching world something about God. Ross Blackburn says it like this. He says, Israel is set apart that she might, in imitation of the Lord himself, live in such a manner that she faithfully represents him to the nations. The mission is realized primarily by living as the people of God, which will inevitably draw the attention of those who do not know the Lord, thereby making him known beyond Israel to the rest of the world. That's what they were supposed to do. They're a kingdom of priests. 
They're a holy nation. And this means they have been consecrated by the Lord to bear His name, to be a witness to the nations, and their conduct, the way they treat God and others, speaks directly to how seriously they take their name-bearing. Or consider the command that we could read a minute ago in the Ten Commandments. You know this command, right? Do not take the name of the Lord, what? In vain. Now, how do we typically think about that command? Your mama ever give you that command? Usually to violate this, we think it's to say God or Jesus like a cuss word. Right? Isn't that how you've understood it? Or like writing OMG in a text or social media or whatever. And make no mistake, okay? Using God or Jesus as a profanity or saying them in exasperation or even in exclamation are sinful and wrong. But that's not the point of this command. Not the primary point, at least. The command to not take the name of God in vain has more with the actions because Israel is bearing God's name. They are taking God's name. Okay, And when they act in a manner contrary to his commands and his character, they are profaning his name or taking it in vain. Carmen Joy M says, At Sinai, Yahweh claims this nation as his very own and releases them to live out their calling. That calling is to bear Yahweh's name among the nations, that is, to represent him well. M says, it's as if God gave Israel an invisible tattoo that marked them as belonging to him. It's invisible to them, but it's visible to the nations. They show this primarily through their worship and conduct. Or let's illustrate another way. I was thinking of, uh, when I was thinking of this, I was thinking of when I was in the military, we were told how we acted in uniform reflected upon, not just ourselves, but the United States Air Force, right? Like if someone saw you act a fool in uniform, they wouldn't just conclude that you were a fool, but that this must be how people in the Air Force act, right? That, that, that there were rules as to what was and wasn't appropriate behavior on or off base. There was even a time when I was stationed in Alaska where they told us, don't go off base in uniform unless you absolutely must, because they were afraid. <laughs> they were afraid that troops would go off base, be in uniform, act foolish, and that would reflect poorly on the military. You were, in some sense, bearing the name of the military when you wore its uniform, and you could mar its reputation through your deeds. So it was for Israel. Their conduct mattered because it, was sa it said something about the one whose name they bore. Stephen Dempster said it like this. He said, when these commands worked out in specific applications in an agrarian community, a fundamental insight into the divine is shown. In other words, although God has no image in heaven and on earth, he wishes to represent himself through the model of his people. They image him. This is how God is to be known to the world. The invisible God is made visible through the actions by people that are up close and personal to him. Now, drawing application for us on this point is not too difficult, is it? <laughs> because the lesson is the same. We too, as the people of God, as the church of God, as disciples of Christ, bear the name of Jesus. And thus, what we do matters more than we might think. 
When Jesus gave the disciples, and by proxy us, the Great Commission, what did he say? He said, go and spread my rule. Isn't that what he said? Go and spread my rule. He was putting his name on us, giving us authority to image him in how we live. He said to baptize new converts to his kingdom, and he used the same language, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because when you do, you are putting his name on them in some sense, so they may bear it. And what else did he say? Teach them what? To obey everything I have commanded you. Why? Because they need to know, right? (laughs) How to bear the name of the triune God and how they ought to live in response to his grace. Why did we spend 10 weeks talking about biblical church membership? Because what undergirds it all is that the church bears the name of its head, who is Christ, and how it conducts itself matters eternally. Fact is, Christ gave us a book of the covenant in the source called the New Testament to tell us how to live as a church in light of the gospel before a watching world too. The way we do or do not take seriously Christ's commands as individuals and as a church tells the world something, doesn't it? It tells the world something about how seriously we take bearing the name of Jesus. And this leads us directly into our next point, which is point number two. To be God's people means devotion to him touches all of life. Okay? Point number two. To be God's people means devotion to him touches all of life. So remember what undergirds the book of the covenant is Israel's bearing God's name, being marked out as people, and these rules also speak to God's character. They tell us something about God and what he's like, and thus what he demands for those who bear his name. Is this not what law does? Doesn't law in society reflect the character of the lawgiver and the nation? It reflects the concerns of the society and the nation. And what these laws and the law on the whole tell us is that God is a God who cares about justice and fairness and dignity and the poor and the oppressed. And those who bear his name, guess what they should care about? Justice and fairness and dignity and the poor and the oppressed. They tell us these rules that God takes seriously how those bearing his image are treated because they are endowed with intrinsic dignity and worth. These laws tell us both what God is like and how he expects his people to live in light of his grace, which shows us that he expects those in relationship with him to allow that relationship to affect every single aspect of their lives. If you just consider, even for a moment, the first four of the Ten Commandments, what do you see? You see that God expects exclusive loyalty to Him. Is that fair to say? If you read just the first four commandments, God expects exclusive loyalty to Him. You cannot follow God and follow idols. You cannot serve God and self. 
You cannot both be obedient to God and make your own rules for what it looks like to belong to Him. God simply will not allow for compartmentalization of your life. He demands first place to be your true love. He demands your primary allegiance and He expects those facts to flow out to how you live every aspect of your life. What the book of the covenant does, it doesn't cover every conceivable scenario that there could be. It does show that whatever area of life you find yourself in, doesn't matter what it is, God is Lord over it. You can't say this part God is over and I will retain control over these parts. God leaves no space for that either here or anywhere else in Scripture. Now, I've illustrated this before by thinking about how some people have that one room in their house that's kind of off limits to guess. Do you guys have that? I bet you do. Don't lie. You know that one room? You know that one room, right? You're picturing it, aren't you? Like if you open the door, it'd be like cartoonish stuff would fall out on you, you know? It's like, you know you're having company over and you sort of have that room. You're like, no one's going to come in there. So you just like, <laughs> just start tossing stuff. I'll get to that later, right? And a no, you ever have a nosy guest come over that just helps themselves to a tour? And they're like, help, like reaching for the doorknob. It's like slow motion. You throw your body in front of it, right? And you're like, that room, don't worry about that room, right? We could be like that with our lives. We have different areas that we want Jesus to be Lord over. We also have those parts that are off limits because we think or we want to retain control. And we think that's just fine. And we're okay with it. And we think Jesus is okay with it. But friends, He is not. Christ will have lordship over all your life or none of it. We don't get the option of part-time Jesus or half devotion. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. Moitier says the Lord means His law. He means it to govern His people's actual life. He means obedience to be the keynote of their conduct in every aspect and activity. All of life is His arena. And for all of life, He has prescriptions and ideals. On the other side of the picture, the Lord's people have a duty to bring all of life under the scrutiny of His Word and to live all of life as His Word directs. Even a cursory glance of chapters 21 through 23 reveal this to be the case. Don't they? In chapter 21, they're told how indebted people can become servants, but there are term limits and they can't treat them any way they want. They're told that what should happen if they fight. <laughs> If they, a fight breaks out, or what should be done about animals? And in chapter 22, they're given instructions on property, and even what to do if something breaks that you're borrowing or lending. In 22, we see how sojourners and widows and fatherless are to be treated, how one should deal with lending money. And in 23, they're told that speech matters, and, that, and how they are to be just and not slant the system against the poor and weak. Every single conceivable aspect of life is under the lordship of Yahweh. And how one approaches every aspect of life should be informed by that relationship and by His grace and mercy. No area, this is what it's telling us, New Testament echoes this too, 
No area, not your land, not your crops, not your interpersonal relationship, not sex, not money, not your banking, not your family. No area is off limits to the rule of God. And he should inform how you live in all aspects, how you do your job, how you relate to your spouse and kids, how you treat your coworkers, how you spend your rec time, how you talk to people, all of it. Jesus is the Lord over all of it. And your relationship with him should drive how you approach literally everything. What's off limits to him? What's he lord over? This side, weak, all right? (laughs) But next, what undergirds these laws is grace. It's because y'all are so captivated, right? Thank you. I appreciate that. Point number three, those who receive grace should be givers of grace. That's simple, right? Those who receive grace should be givers of grace. Go to chapter 21. Okay, let's read a couple of these. Look in chapter 21 of your Bibles or Scripture journals. Let's read verses 1 through 6, okay? These are the first set of case laws in the book of the covenant. Let's read them. They won't be on the screen, so you've got to have your Bible, all right? Now these are the rules what, that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And if the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear and through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. What's really interesting is that if you look at other ancient case laws, which there are some that you can look at, that were written around this time, not a single one of them begins with laws on slavery. But this does, doesn't it? That's the first thing in the case laws. Why? Well, it's simple, isn't it? Because Israel, like a few months ago, were slaves in Egypt. T. Desmond Alexander says that the heart of Exodus is the redemption of Hebrew slaves from control of tyrannical master and establishment of Israel as a nation that serves Yahweh. So they're no longer slaves of Egypt, but they're servants of Yahweh. This is what we've been saying throughout this study in Exodus, right? The Israelites are being moved from the wrong masters to what? It's your, it's your chance. The right one, right? The right one. But they must not forget where they came from. They can't forget how they were treated as slaves and how God graciously rescued them from a bitter situation. That remembrance should drive them to how they treat one another. Now, what's difficult is in 2021, you read this section about slaves, and there's a few things that you and I think of immediately, right? Number one, why do they have slavery (laughs) if it was so bad for them, right? Excuse me. And two, we think slave, and you think of American antebellum slavery, right? Because that's what we grew up being taught slavery looked like, right? And and we impose that on texts like this. But is God really endorsing slavery the way to be conducted, the way that American South approached slavery, do you think? You guys, 
No! It's right there for you, all right? need a sign that says clap or applause, right, to light up. Of course the answer is no, right? The slavery that was practiced in antebellum America was a cruel and unholy practice that stripped image bearers of their dignity and treated them like they were furniture. It was driven by race. They kidnapped people. They divided families. And that kind of slavery is strictly forbidden in the Bible. You can even see, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 16 of chapter 21. What's it say? Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. (laughs) If someone kidnaps another person and sells them, they're liable to capital punishment. So the slavery that we might think of is not the slavery that's in view here. That's what we got to get, okay? Another challenge is this Hebrew word, abed, which, which is translated in your English Bible, English Bible as slave. It doesn't mean that strictly. It's less than a slave, but more than a servant, okay? In fact, it's the very same word used in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, who is the Messiah. But ideally, here, there would be no slavery, right? But God allows for a certain kind of service where a person would become like an indentured servant to someone in order that they could get out of poverty or pay off a debt, okay? But it wasn't based on race, it wasn't forcible, and it wasn't for life. Didn't you see that? After six years, they have to go free. And so these laws are like a net to protect slaves and ensure they weren't mistreated. I think a a modern illustration of what's being described here in Exodus 21, think of the military again. Many people join the military to get out of poverty. Isn't that true? Many people join to get out of poverty. Many of them want to make a way for themselves. Many they come from many people in the military come from low income families and they can't afford college, which is why you have something like the GI Bill. And so they join the military in order to make a way for themselves, but they got to enter a contract and it's term limited. And they, they release control of their life and hand it over to the military in some respects. They're not slaves, but they aren't 100% free either. And if they like it, they could what? Choose to stay for longer. Jeff Mooney says of this topic, in chapters 1 through 12 of Exodus, the word slave is used for affliction, backbreaking work, and property status. In 21 through 23, it takes a new shape, referring to people of unequal status but equal personhood. That's what's important. Okay? The term now signifies individuals whose dignity is guarded and whose release must be eventually secured. Eventually, the person must be released and could not be a slave for more than six years. So no matter how great the original debt was, after six years, he has to go free and the debt written off. Unless the slave desired to stay with the family. Did you see that? That they're indentured to. And that's very different from slavery we might think of, right? Because the the, the power is actually in the slave's hands to stay, which you clearly see in verse 5. One of my favorite movies of all time is called The Patriot. You guys seen this? Starring Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger, okay, it came out in 2000. You guys have seen this, right? Yes? What about this side? Yes, all right, all right, thank thank you. (laughs) Yes, don't don't get ahead of me, all right, Harry? All right, relax. 
Next week, sit on that side. You can help them be loud, all right? So <laughs> Gibson's character is actually loosely based on a real fella named Francis Marion, okay? The, stop it, all right? <laughs> Did you steal my notes? He got the nickname. What's his nickname, Harry? Uh, thank you, sir. All right. But what they did was they changed the name of the fella because he owned slaves. All right? They, they didn't call him Francis Marion because he owned slaves. So what they did, if you'll remember, is they had, Gibson's character had servants, didn't he? Um, but they weren't actually slaves. And in one scene, the antagonist, British officer Colonel Tavington, man, you hate it. You guys hated this guy? He tells the servant that any slave who serves in the British military will get their freedom. And the guy replies, sir, we're not slaves. We work the land. We're freedmen. Well, that's not how slavery, and that's not true of that, main, that character. That's not how slavery actually worked in the American South. But it's kind of how it was supposed to work in Israel here. Those who entered slavery did so to pay off debts, but they were given dignity and honor and they were to be treated with compassion, and they were to go free unless they chose to stay out of love for their new family. But what's underneath this, and the rest of the book of the covenant, is that the Israelites need to remember from whence they came, and the grace of God in their rescue from slavery. Again, ideally, there would be no need for this type of indentured service, but if but even if one found themselves needing to enter into this to pay off debt, they're serving a fellow Israelite, right? Who should treat them with compassion. Why? Because they remember what it was like to be a slave. And they remember what, that, that they owed their freedom to God and His grace alone. So they should honor and respect those who are in their service. They should use that remembering to treat their fellow countrymen with dignity and honor. And we see a couple uh, more examples of this. L look at a couple more examples with me. Look at 22, 22 verse 21, for instance. 22 verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Why? You were sojourners in the land of Egypt, right? You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. And what's the rationale? You were a sojourner in the land. Or look at, look at verse 19 of chapter 23, 23, uh, or 23, 9, 23, verse 9. It's almost word for word the same verse, right? You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, right? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Why shouldn't they oppress a sojourner? Because you know what it was like. This is reminiscent, I think, of Jesus' treat others, right? The, what we call the golden rule. Treat others how you wish to be treated. When you see a sojourner or a refugee or an immigrant, how will you treat them? That's what's being asked. You should treat them with compassion and care, but why? Not only because God cares about them, not only because they are fellow image bearers worthy of dignity and honor, but because you remember what it was like to be a sojourner. And you remember how you wished you would have been treated. I think this is probably why we as a nation do such a poor job of caring for immigrants and refugees. I don't think anyone can honestly look at our system and conclude that how we treat immigrants and refugees is the best or most just way. 
I mean, even so-called, you guys know what a dreamer is? Nobody know what a dreamer is? You do? A dreamer is somebody who was brought to America as a child or a baby. <laughs> okay? They didn't choose to come here. But even they face deportation to a country they've only been to when they were maybe in the womb. But I can't help but wonder if the way we view and treat refugees and immigrants at times isn't because we forgot that we all came from immigrants and refugees. Isn't that true? I know you're all comfortable, but that's okay. That's true, isn't it? Unless you're Native American, you're the fruit of people who immigrated to this country. Yes? We didn't just magically appear here. Even if you trace your family line to like before the revolution, they still immigrated here. But it's perhaps been so long or we've forgotten that at one time our family sought refuge here and were granted it. And we also forget to put ourselves in other people's shoes. How would you want to be treated if you were fleeing from oppression? Would you want to be embraced and afforded opportunities or would you wish people would assume you're up to no good and turn you away? We forget where we came from. Israel was not to make the same mistake. Underneath, a lot of the book of the covenant are the questions, whom do you serve? How does God want you to act? Did you receive unmerited grace and salvation? How would you want to be treated? These questions should undergird how we approach everything. We talked about how all of life should be shaped by our relationship with God, and it should also be shaped by how we've tasted grace and how we wished we would be treated if we were in other people's shoes. The very best illustration of this is a biblical one, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Is that not a brilliant parable? This is how the parable goes. Jesus says there was a king, and he was collecting on his debts, and he had a particular servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. Okay, To give you an idea of how much money this is, consider that one talent, one talent equals 20 years wages. Okay? And he owed 10,000 of them. A laborer would have to work 60 million days or roughly 193,000 years to accumulate this kind of money. But the number 10,000 was also like as high as they would typically count in the ancient world. So it's saying like infinite, inexhaustible, right? It's like saying... Imagine if you personally owed the equivalent to the U.S. national debt. Okay? So the man is before the king, and he pleads that he just needs more time, which, I mean, he's delusional, right? He doesn't need more time. He can't pay that off. But the king, it says he feels forgiveness in his guts, and he just, you don't owe me anything, you're free. Just, just forgives him, okay? He absorbed the debt. So the servant leaves, right? Fresh off of having been forgiven this extravagant, number and he sees a fella across the street who owes him a buck 50 from one time that he got a coke from the vending machine right and so he grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says where's my money and the man says what he said to the king i just need more time well, you know what he did nope threw him into debtor's prison and the servant was forgiven 570 times the amount he refuses to forgive now if you were in jesus's original audience what would you be thinking You'd be thinking, yeah, right. Someone who was forgiven that much would not withhold forgiveness for so little, which I think Jesus would say what? 
Exactly. Israel had tasted of God's extravagant grace and thus should show others what? Extravagant grace. To not do so is to forget what God had done for them. It's to forget that they're debtors and would still be oppressed, sojourning slaves if not for a move of God. What about you? Where would you be if not for the grace of God towards you? Do you ever dwell on that? Do you ever dwell on the enormity of grace shown to you? And then, in turn, let that drive how you treat others? I think we Christians can be quite forgetful, don't you? When it comes to how God has graciously dealt with us through the work of Jesus on our behalf, every grudge held... Every ounce of unforgiveness, every record-keeping of those who have wronged us, every harsh word about a fellow image-bearer is an admittance of forgetting grace. It's to forget that God through Christ has forgiven us a debt incalculable. It'd be like being forgiven a $20 trillion debt only to turn around and hound someone who owes you a buck. Friend, does Christ's graciousness towards you lead you to approach life differently? Should it? Do you treat others the way you wished they'd treat you if you were in their place? Do you remember that, that when you're dealing with people, that you're dealing with image bearers who are just as sinful as you are? This is why we need to continually remind ourselves and one another of the gospel. Because forgetting it leads to actions that make it seem as if we haven't tasted of God's lavish grace. True grace received and realized leads to actions of grace and compassion to others. Okay, fourth. And finally, these laws show us that God is a God of justice and that he expects his people to be a people of justice. God is a God of justice and he expects his people to be a people of justice. A common thread throughout this section and the law on the whole is that God expects his people to deal justly because they serve a God who is utterly, completely, and purely just. These laws are meant to aid them in these pursuits because humans, left to their own devices, you know this, won't be just, will we? Due to sin, humans simply do not know how to be truly just. While the cry for justice is imprinted on all of our hearts, we still need guidance on how to be functionally just in society. And this is why God gave them the Book of the Covenant. Just as he gave the rest of the law to teach them how to live in a relationship with him, how to live in a relationship with one another. So we could say that these rules are a net, not a ceiling. They're a net, not a ceiling. By that I mean that those, these laws aren't given so they could reach up to them and hit them and thus be saved. They're already saved. They're keeping these rules won't save them. If, if that was their intent, don't you think that God would have written these down and gave them to them back when they were in Egypt? And he's like, here, see if you can do this, and if you do it, you'll save yourself. He doesn't do that. He saves them first. 
He saved them by his might. Then he gave them the law so that they would know how to live in light of that rescue. They're a net, not a ceiling. Carmen Joy Ims illustrates it like, imagine if your community, imagine if in Cordial we were planning to build a new playground, okay? And it was, had easy public access, which means it was right beside a busy intersection. Wouldn't it be odd at the planning stage if somebody argued that the kids would have more fun if there was no fence? Don't you think that'd be weird? That fence could have cramped their style, right? No, putting a fence between cars in motion and kids in motion just makes sense. It ensures that children can play freely without fear of harm. It provides parents with respite, right, from watching their every move. A good playground includes physical boundaries, right? These ensure that everyone can have fun and fewer children end up in the emergency room. The fence thus is a gift. A playground with no fences isn't freedom. It's an accident waiting to happen. Israel and their laws are, their laws are fences within which life can flourish. You see? They make possible a distinctive way of life for their bearing of God's name. So, no book of the covenant and no law would be like a playground near a highway without fences. They guard, they aid so that those within the fences can enjoy life and flourish the way God intended. The laws help Israel, they help guide them to justice, and they teach Israel about God and show that he is a God of justice. Let's consider, with the, the time we have left, let's consider just a couple examples real quick, okay? Look at 22, 21, okay? 22 and verse 21 through verse 24. Look at what it says. God is a God of justice. You shall not wrong, which we read earlier, a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Here we see how seriously God takes the treatment of the disadvantaged, doesn't, don't we? Don't we? First, he commanded, you shall not mistreat a sojourner, orphan, or widow. What if you do? Well, if they cry to God, he will hear their cry, like he heard Israel's cry in Egypt, and will bring his wrath against them, and he will take them out. Noah says, he will make their wives widows and their kids orphans. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? What it's meant to show is that God has little tolerance for abuse of the poor and the disadvantaged. And truly, this should serve as a deterrent, right? Like if you're reading this, you're not trying to do this. It should teach them that God cares about what he cares about and should stop them from becoming oppressors. It's unjust to mistreat people in general, right? But especially those who are already at a societal disadvantage. God takes seriously... And, and, and he takes this seriously, and he himself will bring justice because he is a just God. And I said earlier, there's no one-to-one -one correlation between the Book of the Covenant and us, but truly, in what he says about the poor and the oppressed, it's not like, you know, God cared about the poor and the oppressed then, but he doesn't care about it now, right? God still takes very seriously how we treat the poor and disadvantaged. Look at uh, 2225. Here's further examples about God and his justice. <coughs> if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you 
If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, guess what? I will hear. I will hear, for I am compassionate. God is saying, do not humiliate or take advantage of the person whose situation requires that he seeks a loan. If your neighbor is in need, you can loan to him, but do not let him freeze to death at night. And do not let him people see him without his cloak and think less of him. This is important because it is, isn't this true? When people are at their most uh, vulnerable, that's when they are being taken advantage. In that where people seize on the poor when they're at their most vulnerable. And God says, do not do it. You know, these verses came to my mind the other day when I was driving and I saw a billboard on I-75. I bet you've seen it too. It was for the lottery. Have you guys seen that honking thing? Specifically the Powerball. What's the billboard trying to accomplish? Have you ever thought about that? It holds before our eyes the illusion that we could become instant millionaires. Isn't that right? Instant millionaires for just a couple dollars of investment. You could become a millionaire. And guess what? The more you play, the better your odds are. Forget the fact that you have a statistically better chance of being hit by lightning or seeing a UFO. If you play the Powerball or scratch-offs, you could become a millionaire. This is your chance to get out of poverty in an instant. Just two bucks. But the lottery, like payday loans, are just state-sponsored targeting of the poor. Aren't they? To take advantage of their desperate situation. 150 years ago, evangelicals led the way in opposing state-sponsored lottery. Now, may we help write the bills. There's no escaping the fact that the lottery is a regressive tax of the poorest citizens. And Christians should oppose anything that would take advantage of the poor and disadvantaged. Do you agree with that? That was sad. Do you guys not think that Christians should oppose anything that takes advantage of the poor? <laughs> the Bible is clear, isn't it? The Bible is clear that we must oppose the exploitation of the poor and vulnerable by the powerful. That is exactly why we have to re reject things like I just mentioned. Rationalizations about lottery financing, state-sponsored lotteries are government power to support a type of predatory gambling that exploits our poorest neighbors. Of all the people in all the world, Christians should be the ones who stand against injustice. Don't you think that's true? Clearly, we serve a God of justice. We should oppose any system slanted against a segment of the population because we serve a God of justice who takes umbrage with those who exploit the weak and disadvantaged. And so should we. Let's look at one more thing. Jump down to 23, verse 1. 23, 1 through 3, and then we're going to look at 6 through 8, and then we'll land this plane, all right? You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man 
in his lawsuit. Look at verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in your lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear sight and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. God is calling them to value truth, reject gossip, reject partiality. He's saying that they cannot have one set of moral standards for friends and another for enemies. Because then the truth is pliable and ethical duties are meaningless. Justice should come out on top regardless of who the subject is. Why? Because God shows no partiality, neither should you, and you should ensure as much as within your power to see that justice is fair. That is, that is truly just. You've seen the statue of Lady Justice, right? Or a depiction of her? How is she portrayed? She has a sword of which to deal swiftly. She has scale that represents the weighing of evidence. And you know, since the 16th century was added a blindfold. Why? Because justice is supposed to be blind in that it does not care or take into account whether or not one is weak or rich or poor or their ethnicity or their status. It must be impartial. And that's what God is calling for here. God is perfectly holy, which is why he's perfectly just. God will see to it that justice is done. And at the end of the age, he will call to account every person who has tipped the scales of justice against other people, and everyone who has oppressed the weak will stand before his holy wrath. But one cannot help but read Exodus 20 through 23 and feel the weight of their own failure. I mean, you read the Ten Commandments, you can't help but realize we've broken every single one, at least in our hearts. Right? We read the Book of the Covenant, and we can't help but realize that there have been times when we've turned a blind eye to injustice, we've had a chance to help someone who was poor or weak or homeless and callously looked away. Have you done this? I've done this. We comfort ourselves by saying that they're likely nefarious or up to no good or deserve their plight, something we would not wish on ourselves if we were in that situation. This is why my oldest daughter Ariel's back there, don't look at her, you're embarrass her, is my hero. Because she sees, every time she sees a homeless person, if she has a buck or two, whatever she has, I got to give it to them. You know why? She sees a human she doesn't assume the worst. There's an image bearer of God who needs help. And what else she does? Every person she meets. Do you love Jesus? <laughs> That's, she's my hero. I wish we were so bold and loving and seeing people the way God sees them. There have been times... We have lied and gossiped. We have spread rumors that we couldn't verify. We have applied a different moral standard to our friends and political allies than our enemies or opponents. There have been times where we faced with a choice between right and wrong, but the right choice cost so much so we either did nothing or we compromised. Do you feel the weight of all of this? And you know what? Since God is a God of justice, you're going to pay for all that. Justice has to be done, right? I mean, <laughs> you and I broke the laws of the king of all things by our own volition. If he did nothing or just forgave us with a hand wave, that's not justice. 
God knows that. Someone will have to pay for you what you and I have done. Sometimes, I don't know if you ever thought this, people will ask, is Jesus coming and taking on flesh and being executed and rising and ascending? Was all that necessary? Couldn't God just have forgiven everybody? No, because that wouldn't be justice. The debt has been incurred. Someone has to pay it. Even in the parable of the unforgiving servant, the king didn't just wipe the debt away. He absorbed it. In the same way, Jesus, the only perfect person who ever lived, the only person who obeyed the book of the covenant and the Ten Commandments and the law 100% perfectly, the only one who owed no debt, he came, he took on your debt and my debt. He absorbed the wrath of God that was justly aimed at you and me, and he satisfied the justice of God for us. It's like you're standing in a courtroom, and you're on trial, and there's no doubt you're guilty. Like, there's video evidence, there's a thousand witnesses, and the judge slams down his gavel, and he says, guilty, and then he takes off his robe. And he walks off the bench, and he stands in your place, and they haul him off as you go free. But for Christ's riches to be applied to your bankrupt account, you have to admit that you're the weak. You're the needy. You're the sinner. You're the lawbreaker. You're the rebel. And you have to give your allegiance to Him. So there's only two choices, really, right? Either you will die, and you will stand before the judgment bench of a just God, and He will collect His debt or you will stand before the judgment bench of the just God and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done on your behalf. And today, you will make one of those two choices. In your life, you will make one of those two choices. Which will it be? But friend, if you choose or have chosen for Christ's substitutionary death to be applied to your bankrupt account, What other choice do you have than to live utterly for Him? What other choice do you have but to be overwhelmed by such grace and then respond by bending your knee to Him and living every second of the rest of your earthly life under His Lordship and for His glory, telling anyone who will hear about where you found mercy? What other choice makes sense? Whether you're choosing Christ for the first time or you're casting yourself upon Him once again, Be overwhelmed and transformed by what he's done on your behalf. And then bear his name. And let that inform how you live in every aspect of your life, from your work, to your play, to your relationships, to your citizenship, to the way you look at fellow image bearers, to the way you advocate for the weak. Don't leave today unchanged. And go out from henceforth to the glory of so great and just a God and King.